I got my Bible right here, 15 pages of notes. I like studying history. I know it's that time of year we think about the revolution and, um, and the people who paid that price. I, I tell you, how many of you have lived in the cold? Look at these hands now. See, you've lived in the cold weather. Yeah, so many of you are from the northern countries. I remember as a little guy, <clears throat> in the snow, the feet, the nose, the ears, they're really, really cold until they get frozen, and then you don't feel them anymore, and that's okay. I just can't imagine those soldiers walking in the northern country and all of that snow and I'm just feeling that pain saying I can't take another step and the frostbite and the, 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 just the, the things that they went through for the freedoms that we have here in America. I love studying all of that history and um, won't rehearse that till I get inside the room at Philadelphia. <clears throat> We're often told that there's a a mixed group in there and often you know you're on the radio depending on the books you read or the things that you read about well this country is founded on Christian principles and our leaders our founding fathers were Christians and that's the way we establish and there's a whole segment a large segment of America whose thinking is along that lines or about our founding fathers there's a, another significant segment a large portion of even Christians who would say well that's not quite the way it was they were religious people but they were something called deists deist and their philosophy was deism whatever that is maybe we'll come back to it maybe we won't I don't know um, I'm convinced after reading some some history that that's probably true probably um, both of those groups were there. And furthermore, I'm as much convinced about that as I am that there were probably some religious secularists. Can you do that? That's an oxymoron. I think that there were some religious secularists in the room. What does that mean? Well, you could say it differently. You could probably say that there were probably people in the room that displayed some kind of religiosity and they displayed that religiosity for a reason, but it really had very little bit to do with any personal commitment to God on any level. You see, there was a time in America when it was impossible not to be a Christian. I'm talking in cultural context. I don't mean that, in, that being a citizen of the United States automatically meant that you're a Christian. No, I'm not saying that. But I'm saying in the cultural environment, to live in society, there was a time in America when it was impossible not to be a Christian. You had to be a Christian. Or to do commerce, to do anything, you had to be a Christian. And then there came a time when it was acceptable not to be a Christian. It was acceptable not to be. Pluralism moved in, the Enlightenment moved in, and the world was opened up, and there were a lot of other religions and things out there, and immigrants came in, and so not everybody had to think the same way in order to exist in our society. And we've come full circle because the third category of it is now 
It's not good to be a Christian. It's no longer good to be a Christian. You're put into some bigoted category by a large swath of America. So we've changed. And I'm convinced that in that room in Philadelphia, we're all of the above. All of the above, the people that were in there. Well, Pastor, why are you chasing this little rabbit? Well, because it's so often put that they were all deists. Now, let's come back to it for just a second. What's a deist? He takes off his watch. You know, this is one of those gadgetries, so you don't actually wind it. You know, fascinating little pastoral joke, you know, that um, the, uh, the, the 17-year-old went up to the counter at the jewelry place like that and said, said, uh, said Mr., do you have a battery that fits my watch? And uh, the jeweler took it and looked at it and turned it over like that and said, well, now, son, this watch doesn't take a battery. You see that little knob on the side? You take a hold of that thing and you just wind it like that, just like that, and you wind it up. He stood back and he's, what are they going to think of next? <laughs> you know. I say that illustration to come back to deists. The general sweeping, general philosophy of the deist was like that watch or a watchmaker. The watchmaker made the watch and then he wound it up and then he just let it go. That's God. God made, created everything. Then he wound it up and then he just let it go. And so you can see in the mind of a deist, he may believe in God and... Um, and certain things about God, God the Creator. In fact, if we looked into our founding documents, would we not see that kind of language there? And yet now, now we're living in the world, now it's up to you and me. I mean, God made it, fine. He wound it up, fine. But now he lives at a distance. He lives someplace, he's in heaven, and now the running of the world and the conducting of its affairs is our business and God's no longer he's disconnected from his creation now well pastor that's all well and good now we've got deism we've got the beginning of the nation well when we turn to the third chapter of Exodus we are going to go in the diametrically opposite direction when we look at Moses and the mission and, uh, I, I, you know, I've already announced we're looking for a lead pastor. One of the things that affords, I've learned, uh, um, there, there's two arenas, one of which I'm in now and one I've been in before. I've been an interim pastor before. That is a church who's looking for a pastor, and I've gone in there and preached. Sometimes I'll just one and done, and then other times I've stayed there for more than a year as they look for a pastor. But the one aspect about being an interim is, is eh, you can pretty much say anything you want to. <laughs> you're, gonna, you're back out of town. The other arena is this. I get to say anything I want. What are you going to do? <laughs> Just kidding. I love Bible study. And I'm really not all that 
concerned about the, uh, the rudiments of preaching in these weeks with you. And I want to look into the Scripture and I want to see what the Scriptures teach us about being opposite from a deist. Now remember, last week, said a couple of things. I want to do just that little review. That's what teachers do. little review. So we said that when it comes to preaching narrative portions of Scripture, that's where we are. We're in the parts of the Scriptures that tell a story. They have a beginning, a middle, and an end. There's a story that goes along. We have that in Genesis. Now we have it again in Exodus that tells a story. But when we come to preaching and teaching... Uh, about or from narrative scriptures, we need to remember that we need to keep in, in, in tow in, in our thinking two related aspects. Two related aspects when teaching narrative portions of scripture. One is that narrative portions of scripture, the story is there for our example. And we read 1 Corinthians chapter 10, even in this particular part of the life of Israel, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 just explicitly says, the things that happen to them are for your example. They're for our example. In most of the cases, in a negative way. That is, what happened to them, you need to look at as an example so that you don't do the same thing. But you see, we don't want to be just looking at narrative portions of Scripture for an example. Otherwise, all we're going to do is turn into some kind of religious moralist. We look at the life of Moses and we mimic it. Well, that's not all that there is to narrative scripture. It's some of it, and we don't want to throw it out, but we must combine it with the other, and that is how it fits into, describes, characterizes, gives us a greater appreciation for God's entire redemptive story, God's re entire redemptive purpose in the world. It fits into the gospel somehow. For us to disconnect it from the mission is to miss the point of the entirety of God's word. And so we see it for an example, but we also see it in God's redemptive plan. Now when we get to chapters 3 and 4, I'm going to suggest to you that there are three essential components in, the, in God's mission, in the gospel mission that we see here in Exodus chapters 3 and 4. Don't know how well I'm going to treat chapter 4, but we'll, we'll take a look at it. All right, so what is it? All right, here we go. Exodus 3 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father in law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. You know, God wants us to pray right now, so we're going to do that, okay? Heads up, heads up. You know, let's tune in. This is good stuff. This is Bible. So, you know, you should have it out. You should have something to write with. You know, Lord, I pray that as we uh, bow before your word and these words have been read so many times before. God, I pray that right now the hurting heart that needs to know of your presence and your love, I pray, Lord, that you would meet that need today in the sound of my voice, whether it's here in this room or on the Internet and the computer. Lord, I pray um, 
meet that need for your glory, for your name's sake. Teach us your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Moses with his father-in-law, he's keeping flock like that. He sees this burning bush in, in verse 2. And so he says to himself, you notice Moses talks to himself quite a bit. I don't and Moses said, I will turn aside, maybe he said it to somebody else, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush. Now, <clears throat> here's a great example. It's not in the sermon, but would you make a side note on your interpreting uh, narrative portions of Scripture that God condescends to us in narrative scripture. Well, he does in all different kinds of genre, but he condescends to us. What do I mean? That he, he talks to us on a level that we understand. And here's an example of it. It says, when the Lord saw, uh, saw that he turned aside, God called to him out of the bush. Now, do you think God ever intended to speak to Moses out of the bush? So don't be, be careful here when it says when he saw that he turned. It's just a timing thing. It's not a, it's not a providence thing that we talked about last week. God's in control of this. He knew Moses was going to turn aside to the bush, and he was there. <clears throat> so Moses, he's cried out to him, Moses, Moses. And he said, Hineni. I love saying that. Now everybody knows Hebrew. Hineni. Hineni. It's in the Bible a lot. A lot. Every time you say, see in the King James, he said, Behold, here I am, or here I am, Hineni. Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Verse 6. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. And I have heard their voice because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians have oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses... It's written too many times. But Moses. But Moses. But Buzz. Whoops. Okay. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, But I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt. You shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said, <laughs> but Moses, then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me what is his name, what shall I say to them? Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, 
the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. And much, much more here. But <clears throat> I like, I like uh, uh, John Frame's assessment of Exodus 3 and using it in the lordship of God. He said there's three basic aspects. I'm not going to preach this, but there are three basic aspects to the lordship of, of God. That is control, authority, and presence. The lordship of God. That is control, authority, and presence. This is what he writes. The difference between control and authority is the difference between might and right. The difference between control and authority is the difference between might, power, and right. Control means that God has the power to direct the whole course of nature and history as he pleases. Authority means that he has the right to do that. Now, control and authority are not synonyms, but they imply each other. You can't really separate them. He's got control. He's able to do it. He's got authority. That means he has the right to do it. Now, these are theological concepts that we add to our providence, but they're inseparable. And God controlling all things and having authority over all things. Again, last week's sermon on God's providence. But when we speak of the third category of his presence, we don't mean physical presence there, but rather God's involvement, interaction in and through his creation. This presence is not simply a presence of, well, honestly, the way we usually mean it. Oh, you know, he's, he's, he's promised to never leave me or forsake me. Now, listen. I know that scripture. I'm not going to deny that. I'm not going to try and water that down. But so much of the time when we say he'll never leave me or forsake me, we're kind of like, okay, we're getting the warm fuzzies here. You know, God's just my, you know, I don't like the language. God's my homeboy. You know, we're close. We're tight. You know, bro, all that kind of hip stuff that I'm too old to use. All that, you know, we're tight, you know. And, and it... And that's not what's happening here. When we talk about this kind of presence, we are talking about a, a covenant presence. The covenant presence of God is so above that emotive kind of wishy-washiness, you know, God's always with me. Now that's an important truth, and there are times when we are low and we need that emotive connection. So I'm not trying to throw that out and look at you like every time you feel good about God being close that you're wrong. That's not what I'm saying. But I am elevating what's going on in Exodus 3 when God says, I will be with you. His presence is there. Now here's the part... <clears throat> Here's the part where I get to do what I normally wouldn't be doing. But there's some stuff going on here in the Hebrew language that if you'll just stay with me for a few minutes, I can, I'm, I'm, having, I'm, I'm having visions of being back in homiletics class and preaching class in seminary and listening to a professor say, never, ever, never, ever, never do what you're about to do. <laughs> but I'm going to do it anyway. 
okay? But hopefully, when I get to the other side of it, after I've lost you completely and try and bring you back, hopefully you'll go, wow. Hopefully you'll go, wow. Now, let me reiterate, I am not trying to teach Hebrew here. But when the Bible uses the name for the Lord here, who shall I say has sent me? You tell them, I am. And then he goes on to say, and listen, that's not just a name for today or tomorrow. That's not just a name for you to use in Egypt when you get back there. This is my name throughout all generations. And what I want us to see is what the scriptures are actually saying, what his name is. So take a look at the Tetragrammaton. That's the part where you're not supposed to do that because you just lost everybody. Tetragrammaton, just tetra means four, grammaton means letters, just means four letters. And in Hebrew, we usually look at it as the word Yahweh, but it only has four letters, Y-H-W-H. We pronounce it as Yahweh. Our Bibles record it as Lord, all capital letters. Look at your Bible. You can, you can look at some different places in there. Just take a look. I'm looking at verse 16 of chapter 3 real quickly. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord. And in my Bible, they're all capital letters. The Lord. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, reserved in Egypt, 17. And I promise that I will bring them out. And so he uses this tetragram these four letters Lord and by the way where are the vowels no vowels no vowels in the Hebrew at this point so this was to speak of his holy name so the Hebrews because it was so holy substituted 